Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. I'm Dan Ambinger. With tremendous pride and privilege, we are honored to present to you the 2023 Sanjay V. Desai Lecture, which is a named annual medical education lecture series that celebrates the graduation of one Cardio Nerds Academy class and the beginning of another. The Cardio Nerds Academy was established to push the boundaries of digital education, and we are excited to bring you this very special episode, which features our guest speaker, Dr. Melanie Silistio, and our Cardio Nerds Academy Program Director, Dr. Tommy Das. Stay tuned for this extraordinary discussion about the humanity deficiency in medicine and how the practice of compassionate assumption can help us become better physicians to our patients, colleagues, learners, and ourselves. We hope you enjoy this very special discussion, and we want to dedicate this episode to our Academy faculty, chiefs, fellows, and interns. This one is for you. To learn more about the Cardinerds Academy, check out cardinerds.com forward slash academy. And with that, Tommy, take it away. Thank you guys all so much for joining us for the second annual Sanjay Vita Sai keynote lecture in medical education. I'll say, speaking personally and uh, just for the Cardinals as a whole, it's just a, really a poignant day for us all because it allows us a couple of things. It allows us a chance to celebrate the accomplishments of our fellows as well as welcome our new cohort of fellows into the Cardinals family. And it really gives us a chance to reflect as well on where we are with digital medical education and where Cardinals finds its place within digital medical education. And I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating that I do think we're living through a really vibrant time in cardiovascular medical education. And I say that because of a number of different things. One is that I think we recognize that there's a foundation of education that happens at the bedside. It happens in person, one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching, and it happens in lectures and things of that ilk. But as times have changed, there's a plethora of new learning modalities that uh, learners have the opportunity to take advantage of and to really tailor their education to suit their needs in a way that's unique to them and their journey within cardiology and within medicine. And as that landscape evolves, it's really imperative for the learners to understand how to make the most of that landscape, but also the educators to learn how to use that landscape to empower their learners and make sure they're connecting with them and delivering content that's meaningful to them in their growth and their, and their journey. I think that that call and that need is something that the Cardinals Academy really truly answers. And our goal throughout this process and this program has really been to create the medical educators for the digital age, the next generation of medical educators. These are the folks who not only know how to make educational products for the online space, but also know how to use the online space to build community and camaraderie. And I think that's just so important when we think about how we move education forward and having a community of like-minded people who are really focused on making cardiology and medicine more equitable, more diverse, and more exciting is so important. You know, the Cardinals has a core tenets of democratizing cardiovascular education and improving diversity and equity in cardiology. I think that the individuals that we've been lucky to work with for the Cardinals Academy, both the folks who have graduated and the folks who are going to welcome today, really embody that and live that practice in their in their day-to-day -day lives. So I'm just honored for the chance to work with them. I'll say that as we are honoring the graduation of the second cohort of Academy Fellows and welcoming the third cohort, you know, I think we're really fortunate to have a couple special guests here today who I think are really 
thought leaders in the field of medical education and people that I feel really fortunate and blessed to have called mentors over the course of my journey in medicine. The first person I'm going to introduce is someone who means a lot to a lot of people on this call, my former program director, Sanjay V. Desai. Sanjay is a Myron Weisfeld Professor of Medicine at Johns Hopkins. He's the Chief Academic Officer at the American Medical Association, and he is a key figure in the history and creation of the Cardio Nerds. His voice that starts each episode of the podcast, and it's his guidance and mentorship that helped Cardio Nerds become the platform that it is today. You know, when we were first embarking on having a graduation ceremony and a keynote lecture in medical education and you know, Amin and Dan and I were trying to figure out what we were going to call it. Naming it in Sanjay's honor was a, a natural and unanimous choice. I'll say in his new role in the AMA, he's already taken incredible strides and in pioneering precision medical education, which really, you know, means how do we leverage technology and the information of the digital space to improve the entire continuum of medical education from UME to GME to CME? And how do we use all the tools at our development to make sure that the way that physicians are trained and the product that people come out of residency with is something that's standardized and, and meets the needs of the country, meets the needs of our patients. And the work that he's doing is, is I think, really revolutionary and it's going to change medicine and medical education in so many ways. I'll say speaking personally, I'm incredibly grateful for Sanjay for so many things, primarily for allowing me to join the Osler Medicine Health Staff back in 2018. Uh, that's where I got a chance to take my first steps as a clinician, but also had the incredible privilege of uh, entering the orbit of so many people, and especially Ahmed and Dan. There's so many personal anecdotes about Sanjay's leadership I could share, but I think what I'm just going to point out is that he has an incredible talent for creating community. And the community that he's able to foster is something wherein individuals can have their passions celebrated and their interests celebrated and can find what those interests are. But also the group as a whole can define their common missions and fiercely pursue them and share them. And I think Sanjay did that when he was program director. And I think that's what we aim to do with the Carter's Academy with our sense community. So I just want to say thank you so much, Sanjay, for being here and being such inspiration for all of us here in the Cardi Nerds team. I, I just want to, I mean, I cannot express how honored I am to be part of this and have my name part of this. And uh, also just how lucky I feel. I, I actually am probably the most lucky on this entire call because I had the privilege of learning from all of you longer than anyone else on this call. And I feel so fortunate to have met all of you and to have participated and learned from you during your development. And again, watching what you all have done with this, it is just so incredibly humbling and inspiring. So thank you very, very much. Uh, the, uh, the honor is all ours. And it's just so exciting to be a part of this today. As I mentioned the act of building community and moving culture of cardiology forward is a major focus of the Cardiology Academy. And I think as we've been doing that process, uh, there's been some natural questions that have come up. And these are questions like, how do you create a culture of empathetic practice? How do you build that empathy in our interactions with our patients, but also with interactions with each other? Then how do we as educators model that practice? And how do we teach and cultivate these skills in our learners? How does that practice occur in the digital space and how does that translate to our in-person interactions? And, you know, I think when we're thinking about building the community with the academy, these are the questions we think about. And when we were thinking about what we should have the focus for the talk, the, the Sanjay Vidasai lecture this year be, I think the idea of humanity and medicine is something that was really resonant and how I think when we think about humanity and medicine, I think that I've, there are a few better people to talk about that than Dr. Melanie Celestio, who's again, another person I've been very fortunate to have as a mentor. She's an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology at University of Texas Southwestern. She's also the associate dean of student affairs and a distinguished teaching professor at Southwestern. And she co-chairs the ACC Internal Medicine Residency Program. She has a passion for medical education 
promoting humanity and medicine, and she's actively involved in the work of teaching communication skills that encompass meaningful care, discussion with patients, as well as how to have difficult conversations with colleagues. And again, I'll share another personal anecdote. I was lucky enough to cross paths Dr. Celestio when I was a medical student at UT Southwestern. And I remember as a fourth-year student finding myself in her office asking these same questions about what does a career in medical education and cardiology look like? And how do I combine these interests? And I just remember her passion, her thoughtfulness with which she answered those questions just made me excited that there were people like her in this field who were thinking about these things and had such circumspect and such thoughtfulness and empathy. And I, I just was so excited that I was embarking on this path and had role models like her. So uh, we're incredibly honored, Celestia, to have you here today and to have you give the um, second annual Sancho Vita Sai lecture. Oh, Tommy, the honor is all mine, truly. And just like you said about Amit, I think I, I need to have you around with me at all times whenever we walk around. So in case I ever get down on myself, I can have you and, and remind me of some of the things that you know. It's a pleasure and it's a pleasure to be with with all of the graduates and all the incoming class as well. This gives me so much hope for the future of medicine. And so just thank you all for, for giving me a platform to share some of my thoughts with you all about the humanity deficiency in medicine. Thank you. No, thank you so much again, Dr. Slosser, for being here. And as we start the lecture, I think I want to start with just this idea of what, what seems like an easy question, but I think it's deceptively complicated. You chose to talk about the humanity deficiency in medicine. So I'll ask you, what does it mean to have humanity in medicine? And what does it mean to have humanity in cardiology? And why is it important to be humanistic? And what do we stand to lose when there is this deficiency of humanity in medicine? Well, that's a great question. And thank you for that. Let me back up just a little bit and tell you a little bit about where I come from and why this is so, so much of a pivotal, large role in what I do in medical education. Um, y'all, I, I love medicine. I adore it. It's been a driving force in my life ever since I was a very, very young person. And to me, what medicine represents is the perfect marriage between science and humanity. It's like the things that I absolutely love, right? I, I really loved math and science, but then the best part of it was is that medicine brought it to the human aspect of the human condition. And when I talk about humanity, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, what do you mean by humanity? And when I talk about humanity, what I, what I want to just put out there or offer up to y'all as, as maybe what I define as humanity is it's, it's that compassion. It's that kindness, but it's also in the setting of suffering as well. It's really when two things, it's like a paradox meet each other where that compassion and kindness meet the suffering. And what I would offer up to y'all is that we are in a crisis right now. We are in a crisis of a lack of humanity in medicine. You know, our science has grown tremendously. If any of y'all were at American College of Cardiology sessions, scientific sessions this year, there is evidence everywhere you turn. You know, you go to sessions and you see amazing new devices and amazing new techniques and procedures, as well as new data, you know, large randomized controlled trials coming at us from all different directions. And what I'd like to offer up just for us to think about is what happens when we grow that science exponentially, but we don't also grow that humanity exponentially. And I think we're seeing symptoms of that everywhere. So for example, the pandemic is just one huge example of where our humanity deficiency is present. You know, we can have the science, we can have the vaccine. And if we don't actually meet people where they are in their understanding and their knowledge and understand where they're coming from in their own feelings, their own morals and values, then you can see when people reject that science or don't want to accept that science or don't understand that science. And what happens is in our societies that we become very dualistic, 
we split, we tend to just be very opposite of each other and, and really in a fight or flight kind of activity or mode. And in those situations, I would argue that we don't actually come to a common understanding. And when we don't come to that common understanding, we can't then share our values and our thoughts. And so too, our patients cannot accept the sides that we are trying to offer them. I think there's also symptoms in our physicians and our providers as well. I think that a huge source of burnout these days is because of our lack of connection. I don't know about y'all, but you know, whenever I see patients and I have 20 minutes to see a patient and it's literally the one in six months or one time a year that I get to talk to them about their hearts, 10 minutes is just not enough. And it really is 10 minutes, right? After they get their vitals done and, and after they get roomed and all these things. And for me to truly give them the best care, I want to know what their life looks like. What do they want to accomplish? What do they want to do? And what are the things that they dream that they could do, but they can't because their heart um, or their illness prevents them from doing it? And then lastly, and I would say absolutely most importantly, and I'm sure there's many more examples of the humanity deficiency in medicine, but these are just the three that I wanted to offer up to y'all, is honestly the poor patient care that we're giving. Now, I'm not saying that we do this every day, all day. But with that time crunch, with the lack of ability to meet our patients where they are, examples like when you're at the bedside and you learn that your patient has been quote-unquote non-compliant, and maybe you're in a time crunch and you don't have that time and space to find out, you know, what is it that's leading to their non-compliance, if you will, which I'd like to really lean into the thought that maybe we should be using the term non-adherent instead. But maybe that's an inability to afford the medications. Maybe it's because uh, it's a single mother of four children and the last thing in the world that she can keep track of is her own health because she's caring for four other individuals. So all of these things that make us human, that make us connected to one another, independent of one another, I would say that if we don't emphasize that humanity as much as the science, that we are losing an absolute incredible and vital aspect of medicine that without it, there is no medicine. We cannot deliver medicine. We can't deliver that science because we have to meet patients where they are. We have to recognize our own humanity as well and our own confession that we need for ourselves as well. So that in a nutshell, Tommy, if you will. No, that's fantastic. And I think that's a great framework to have this conversation. And I think that resonates with so many of us, the idea that this is a field we went into because it combines the the science, the, the technical prowess, the research with the interpersonal connections that we have with our patients. And I think that's incredibly resonant with so many of us. I did want to, you mentioned COVID and you mentioned how that has further challenged our ability to have this sense of humanity with medicine and to connect with one another and connect with our patients. When we were planning this lecture, you you did share us a personal story about your experience during the COVID pandemic, both as an administrator and a dean and also as a clinician. But I wondered if you'd be able to share that experience with us um, here today. Sure. If y'all see me taking deep breaths, it's because I really am. Um, this is a tough story to share, but I think it's necessary. And um, I finally come to a place where I feel I can share it very honestly and openly. So I want to take y'all back to the pandemic. I know that we don't ever want to go back to the pandemic, but let's take you back to the pandemic for a second here. And I want you to just remember, remember when we were upon the Delta surge and the forecast modeling was, was we were just going to be overcome with the Delta surge and we were going to have an onslaught of patients coming into our hospitals. I have the great privilege and honor of working at Parkland Memorial Hospital, which is a county safety net hospital in Dallas, Texas. And it not only serves a very diverse uh, patient population, but also a patient population that oftentimes does not have a lot of access to care. 
doesn't have a really high level of healthcare literacy, and also is a group that that can be homeless um, and and that don't have any insurance, medical insurance. So as you can imagine, in this type of setting in a county hospital um, that really lives off funds from the community, et cetera, and from taxpayers, they were in a nursing crisis. And one of the heads of nursing leadership came to us at UT Southwestern. We have a great partnership with them and said to us, you know, we are in dire need right now because um, as you all probably recall, a lot of nurses had actually left their jobs to take travel nursing jobs, which were offering a great deal more money than, than their typical regular nursing jobs. So they were in this horrible situation of not having enough nurses yet about to have an onslaught of even more patients, especially those patients who don't have access to care. And so they simply asked us, is there any possibility that, you know, we could start a volunteer program with y'all and maybe the medical students may want to volunteer. And I got to tell y'all, I jumped at the chance. I thought this is, I love Parkland. I love Parkland patients. This is an opportunity for me as part of the medical school um, to offer up something in partnership. But then also, if you put yourself in the shoes of the medical students, many of the medical students had been benched. And what I mean by that is, is that in this era of social distancing and with, you know, the six foot distancing, et cetera, we had to really minimize our teams. So a lot of students were actually taken off of their rotations. And then those first and second years in pre-clerkship time, they were actually told, no, you can't come in and learn how to do an HP and things like that. And they were operating completely virtually, really isolated, if you will. So several of them, in fact, many of them, I would say the majority were chomping at the bit to get back to the bedside, see the patients and remind themselves why they started medical school to begin with, because they were all isolated on Zoom learning medicine. So we created a volunteer program. It took a lot of hours. It took um, a whole curriculum of how can we train them up to check glucoses and be there and present for patients and in different ways than you would typically think of at the bedside for a medical student. I will tell you all that I released my email, sent my email out to all the medical students, um, CCing all the Portland uh, leadership of nursing. And it was simply an ask, if you want to volunteer, we would love to have you. And within two hours, it was completely full. We had maxed it out at 150. And then not only was it full, but we had an overflow Google document that had over 50 to 75 students on as well. And my heart was overflowing. And then I'll never forget what happened, which is, uh, five hours after my email went out, I received a text from a friend that said, you need to get on Twitter. So there was a, a person who tweeted about my email and had a picture of my email. She was from California, it looks like, and she basically used words like, how disgusting is this that people are getting medical students to be unpaid volunteers and risking their lives on the front line? And then it started to snowball. People that I honor, respect, and admire on Twitter started to add to the mix, and it was all in, in a negative light um, of this program. And then it got even worse. It went to Reddit, and uh, one of many threads has over 900 posts on it. I, I just revisited just recently, and it had things like, if you do this, and if you're a student, you are, and I'm giving you the, the least X-rated ones, you are stupid, and you will not be considered at our program. Um you are being taken advantage of. Um, this is absolutely ridiculous. And then the worst, um, it's hard for me to even say it out loud, which was uh, a Reddit post that said, name and shame the students. Um, at that point, the students approached me and said, you need to take down these, these lists immediately because they are threatening to name us online 
and actually attack us. And it was heartbreaking. So we immediately took those names down. We still offered the training. Only 50 students ended up doing the training. And ultimately, only five students ended up volunteering. I, I will tell you that I, I spent time with every single student that volunteered, and, and I'm happy to report that, that all of them found value in it, and all of them enjoyed it, and all of them felt like that they learned quite a bit from it. Um, yet, I still have a lot of guilt, and I still have to watch my emotions when I talk about this, because this was something that I had hoped to offer so that we could deliver great care to our wonderful patient population at Parkland. And instead, what we, what we ended up with was five students many, many hours of training and hours of work put in by nurses, et cetera. And, and it really revealed, you know, an, an incivility and a lack of humanity that I found just quite shocking and, and very painful, to be very frank. And I learned a lot from it. Let's just say that I learned a lot from it. So that was the story that I shared um, with y'all and, and maybe something that may be pivotal in my career as I moved towards promoting humanity and medicine. Yeah, Dr. Cecil, thank you so much for for sharing that, having the vulnerability and the bravery to share it, I think, and modeling that. There are so many takeaways I have, and I, I think that the rest of our audience will probably have as well as they reflect on that story. I think one is that how important it is when you're in a difficult situation like this to have a, you know, a growth mindset or in when you have this negativity coming in in this situation from social media, from the online arena. It's very easy to, to to hide from it or run away from it and to to not call attention to it. But I think what's really powerful about telling this story is that you reflect on how this has changed your practice and how has it changed it for in a positive way in terms of identifying this interest in promoting humanity and how we interact with each other, interact with our patients and interact with our communities, both online and in our interpersonal connections, right? So that taking this incredibly challenging situation and growing through it and sharing with that with all of us um, is, is so powerful. And I'm incredibly thankful for that. The other main takeaway I think I have, and I think something that's incredibly resonant for um, our audience here today you know, is what can happen when you don't have humanity in the online forum, right? And, you know, this is a group of people who is has shown an interest in learning how to be educators online, learning how to use those tools to promote community. And I, I personally think that the digital space has incredible potential in promoting community and promoting humanity. Exactly, right? You, th There are a few other places where you can connect with someone across the country, across geographical, social barriers and, uh, and form a real connection. And those Absolutely. connections, I think, can be really powerful. But you also have to remember that the computer screen can be dehumanizing as well. We forget there's someone on the other end of that um, when you post something. And I, I think that when you see something on Twitter, it's very easy to forget that, oh, that's another person who has their own things that they're working through, both as a physician, as a person, and how has that led them to post whatever they're going to post. But also, it applies to patients too, right? Whenever you see something online and say, let's say it's a echo of, a, of an incredibly dilated LV, or this happens in the interventional world a lot, where you'll see it a cath film of a complication. And it's so easy to forget that that's a real person who was really on the cath table who suffered the complication and had to go through this. And this is a real, there was a real team that took care of that person and had to work through this. And it's very easy when you're just scrolling through Twitter to lose sight of that, right? Absolutely. So I think that there is incredible potential to inspire humanity online, but also these are the pitfalls they have to be aware of. Um, what do you think about Absolutely. that, Archelisio? 
Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, Tommy, you put it so well. And can I just have a disclaimer really quick? I don't, I, I'm not funded by anyone. Okay. So, no, except for UT Southwestern, but let me, let me put out a disclaimer really quick. I, I don't mean to ever come across whenever I talk about this that I am the most humane person in the world. That is absolutely the furthest from the truth, y'all. Tommy's known me for a very, very long time. So he probably has some examples. I hope not too bad, but I am one of those people that I have the worst defense mechanisms. Y'all, I, I have reactive defense mechanisms. I get angry. I pull away from people. And then I also get very hard on myself and become perfectionistic in these scenarios. So I don't want to ever claim to be that person that is the ultimate example of humanity. I'm absolutely not. In fact, I think the reason why I'm so passionate about this is because I have 20 million examples, y'all, of whenever I was an intern. I think that was probably when I was at my worst because I was the most sleep deprived. That was before duty work hours, y'all. And when I, when I didn't react in my best self, when I wasn't representative of who I could be as the most compassionate physician or the most compassionate human being. And so I, I feel so passionate about this because I look back at who I was and I, and I know it's possible for every single person out there to realize some things that can actually make them a better physician or provider. So I want to just elaborate a little bit about what you were talking about, Tommy, if I might. The way that I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, I mean, first and foremost, we have a tendency to dehumanize and demonize people, especially when they make us angry. And of course, my go-to would be the person that tweeted that, you know, I could be extremely angry and come up with all the reasons why that was terrible of her and then come up even with 20 million other reasons of why what she did was not valid, et cetera, and maybe even say some really cruel things about her. But the truth of the matter is, is that what I think is happening in our world, um, and this is just a perfect example, this, this thing that happened with Parkland Hospital, is that if you take any two individuals, so, so imagine any two individuals, and I would actually even venture and ask the audience to even think about, think about you and your loved one, you know, like whoever that may be, whether you're a significant other or, you know, very close sibling or something like that. And if you take those two people and if you separate them by distance, which of course the pandemic did, And then if you also then put in between them a computer and a keyboard, and then let's add on the personal side for people who are going through medical education themselves. Let's add things like being sleep deprived. Let's add things like having you every action that you do be completely analyzed by someone else. Let's talk about just being in a, in a culture also on the systemic side, a culture of perfectionism and a psychologically unsafe space, thinking that if you mess up, you're going to be pointed out and you're going to be blamed. You know, it kind of stands to reason really that we have a culture of shame, blame and incivility and dehumanization because we are, you know, inherently human and we are inherently at fault for things and we are not perfect. But when we have this shame, blame kind of culture, um, we immediately want to show everyone, I'm not the one to blame and we're going to put it on someone else. So what I want to propose is that what we need to do better is move out of the place of shame. Shame being, I am a bad person when I do something bad. Then move into a place of guilt, which is I did something bad and I'm still an okay person. I can correct that. This really actually kind of ties into last year's lecture with the growth mindset, right? With just, we're always learning, you know, we're always able to learn and grow. And so when we act out of guilt and not shame, I think we act in our better defense mechanisms instead of reacting out of anger and defensiveness and perfectionism and all of these things that end up being bad behaviors towards other humans. 
we instead are able to go from maybe an emotionally reactive place to a higher level thinking place. There's several ways that this has been described, and I'm just going to offer a few. The Arbinger Institute has some amazing books on this and talks about the outward mindset. There's also, I don't know if y'all have ever heard of like the limbic versus like a higher level prefrontal cortex thinking, like the lizard brain versus the higher level thinking. There's some debate about that, so I won't go into that. Um, but really, I think the way that I love to explain it, because I've done this before, y'all, I know you know what I'm talking about. It's the email when you reply immediately versus you sit on it overnight. And I, and I want to just offer up that even our society has come to a place of, man, we shoot from the hip, you know, right? And I don't, I hate to use that, that term, but, but really the immediate emotions that we feel, we immediately act on them instead of thinking, let's take a second to think through this and put ourselves in the other person's position. No, absolutely. And I think. There's so many situations that come across our daily clinical lives that that fit with this, right? As you say, we we jump to a response that may not be the most generous response, may not be the most humanistic response, may not be the most thoughtful response. And that's due to oftentimes to external things that are pushing in on us and causing us to be stressed. And I think we all have those at times and we have those experiences in so many ways. To that end, we actually have a couple of uh, skits prepared that we are really fortunate to have some of our upcoming chief fellows uh, act as actors in these skits, I think, to really showcase both the issues when you have this deficit of humanity, and then also, uh, if we'll come back later on, what we can do going forward to improve that. So I want to take it to our first skit. It's going to be introduced by Dr. Amit Goyal with Actors and Academy House Chiefs, Dr. Aladiab and Dr. Ron Amir, who are going to do our first skit for us here. Dr. Ala Diab is a second-year internal medicine resident currently rotating on the inpatient cardiology service at the Cardiners Medical Center. Her last admission of the day is Miss H, a 75-year-old woman with end-stage non-ischemic cardiomyopathy with HFREF being admitted after an appropriate ICD shock in the setting of monomorphic ventricular tachycardia felt to be due to decompensated heart failure. Despite the best efforts of her outpatient heart failure team, Ms. H has had multiple hospital admissions this year, and given her age and comorbidities, she has been deemed to not be a candidate for advanced heart failure therapies. Dr. Dia, being the thorough and thoughtful resident that she is, spends ample time at the bedside learning about her history, including her goals for her medical care. She understands that she is in the last phase of her life and is focused on pursuing more palliative measures and avoiding admissions moving forward so she can be home with family as much as possible. Importantly, Ms. H has an ICD that was placed about 10 years ago and has received appropriate shocks in the past that, while appropriate from the electrical standpoint, have caused Ms. H significant apprehension and fear about future shocks. She is clear and consistent in her wish to have her ICD turned off as she transitions to a more palliative approach to her care. To assist in this, Dr. Dia plans to place a consult to electrophysiology to get their insight and assistance in turning off the device. Though by the time she has finished her patient interview, it is 4.30 p.m. before she's able to place a consult, might I add, on a Friday. The consult goes to the EP pager, currently being held by Dr. Rawan Amir, the general fellow who's on the 10th day of a grueling 14-day contiguous stretch of an inpatient consult service and was actually just packing up her bag on a Friday evening so she could make it in time for her son's show and tell at school when the page comes in. Beep, 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 beep. Oh, you have got to be kidding me. It's 10 minutes to five. I can't believe there's another consult. This is EP returning a page. 
Oh, uh, hi, hi. Thank you so much for calling me back. Sorry, it's so late in the day. Mm-hmm. So, um, I have a consult for Miss H. Um, she's in bed 10. Is she, and in, she's, is um, she unstable? Is she unstable? Uh, well, no, but, um, do they need to be seen today? Well, well, I, well, I personally think they should. Okay. Keep going. All right. So I'm going to start from the beginning. Miss H is a 75 year old female with NICM. Uh, admitted with ADHF, she's clinically stable, but end stage and not an advanced therapies candidate. I just finished chatting with her and she would like to have her ICD turned off. Hey, can you have the programmer ready at bedside? Oh, um, I'm actually not sure where the programmers are kept. Well, do you know what type of device it is? Uh, the patient wasn't sure and it was placed at another center. I'm not sure if we have the record. Do you know anything about your patient? How exactly do you expect me to help you if you don't even have the most basic information? I'm sorry. I haven't been in this situation before. I, I really didn't know. I'll tell you what. Why don't you go back to the patient's room, take a proper history, and then call us back. Until then, please delete the consult order. Oh, okay. Um, I'll, um, I'll, well, gosh, who was that fellow? Both Dr. Diab and Amir leave the conversation emotionally exhausted. Ella, afraid to incur the wrath of additional fellows, signs out the task of getting more information about the ICD to the night team, who ends up swamped with admissions, as happens all the time, with acute situations, etc., and are unable to circle back to our dear patient, Miss H. Her device stays on through the weekend. Excellent acting from everyone involved. You know, we're really, we're really casting against Snipe because we could not have nicer people play the mean fellow uh, on the consultator at 4.50 PM. Great job, everyone. Great job, Allah. That was, that was fantastic. And I'll, I'll kick it back to you, Dr. Celestio. I think that we've all been on that side of the conversation where we are yeah. calling a page and, and we're console and we have a, a, a negative reaction. And I think if we think honestly, there have probably been times when we've been the consultant where we maybe haven't been our best selves when we're answering the page mm -hmm. as well. I like to get your opinion on that exchange. Like, what, do you think that's realistic? Do you think that this is something sure. that happens? And how do you think those kind of interactions contribute to this deficit of humanity in our day-to-day -day practice? Yeah, no, thank you so much, Tommy. And wow, um, to our wonderful fellows that just acted out way to go. I think y'all both deserve an Oscar or an, um, an Emmy, whichever one of those pertains. We may need to come up with a new award for cardio nerds acting. So I think that was incredibly realistic. And I would even, yeah, I'm embarrassed to say this. And I will also volunteer that that could have been me, you know, as the fellow being very annoyed trying to get home to my brand new baby boy whenever I was a first year fellow. And so I have to say, not only was that realistic, but that is happening every day, multiple times a day in multiple institutions. And, and I want to just ask y'all to think about something for a second. Looking at each person's perspective in that scenario. I think it's really easy to take away, wow, Dr. Amir is the bad person in this scenario, and then talk about all the things that she did wrong, and even maybe say some unkind things about her, right? And, and perhaps that's even what the person on the receiving end would do. That, again, is also dehumanizing and something that we all do to try to protect ourselves. So it's all understandable and we have to fight against those natural tendencies to shame and blame. The truth is, is if you look at every single person in this scenario, all the way from the patient 
you know, to the consultant, to the person that is actually receiving the consult. All of these people have their different situations and all are valid, true, and part of the human experience. And they all have emotions that go around that. One of the things that I just want to offer up to y'all is that think about medical education. As Tommy pointed out, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for medical education and studier of medical education. And think about what we actually put forth in medical education. Think about medical school and then residency and then fellowship. Where in that space do we talk about how to handle our emotions when it comes to hard situations in medicine? Where do we learn that? The truth of the matter is, is that actually the data shows that all the way from first year of medical school, all the way to becoming an attending or going out into private practice, you start off with the highest level of empathy when you actually enter medical school. And then you have declining levels of empathy as you go forward. Where do we have those discussions? And don't get me wrong, we do have certain things in, involved in medical school and, and hopefully in a lot of other medical education, especially nursing education, I think actually does as well, where we do talk about emotions and being there also emotionally for patients and each other, but we have still a long ways to go. So what I want to offer up, at least in this scenario, which I think is a beautiful one, and oh, by the way, uh, can I just have a side note and say thank you all for doing the ICDs and end of life? Um, I think... Uh, Amit, Dr. Goyle, Dr. Das, all of all of the people at Cardio Nerds know that this is a major, major, major uh, point of interest for me. And, and much of my work centers around end of life and defibrillators and knowing when to turn them off when it aligns with their goals of care. So thank you for that. Um, but also I'd want to say, you know, it's not just about putting ourselves in the shoes of the patient who obviously does not want that very painful shock, you know, near the end of her life. Um, nor even the, the person who's consulting, um, but also the consultant. You know, you talked about how she's been at the end of a very long block of 10 days of working straight and is dying to go to her son's show and tell. So really every single person in this scenario is a human being with real emotions, real situations, and recognizing that fact and how we should treat each other in these situations is critical as we move forward in medicine. This is where our deficiency occurs. Yeah, thank you so much for going over that, Dr. Celestio. And a lot of how you are reframing this interaction reminds me of lessons I've taken away from Dr. Sanjay Desai. And I think for anyone who spent a lot of time with Sanjay, takes away lessons that guide them continually through, throughout the rest of their life. And, I, and particularly, you know, when you go through education and training as an individual, all these interactions are interactions you have with people, and you're not quite sure mm -hmm. how how pervasive they are. But then when you step into a, a chief role and you see this happening to your students, your interns, your residents, you realize that there, there's something very pervasive about how we interact with one another. And so I asked Sanjay about this and he said, Amit, you know, our first reaction is sort of to dig in and get angry because we're all exhausted. And, you know, you kind of immediately think who's right, who's wrong, and how can my point win out? And he said, but, but let's step back for a moment. I would challenge you to think of everyone as being inherently good and inherently well-intentioned. There's a reason that people answer this calling to go into healthcare, and really it's, it's to help other people, right? So they, they come from a place of goodness. But when someone is behaving or interacting in a way that is adverse, then instead of first thinking about that as a reflection of them, think about what is the environment that converts somebody who is inherently good to react in this way? Is it something at home? Is it something at work? Something about what's going on internally? And we know in medicine, there is a very unfortunate high rate of burnout 
about mental health disorders, substance abuse. But even without these issues, there's a lot of demands that are placed on an individual. So, I mean, for me personally, that's really helped me reframe many of the situations and, and really kind of assume the best in people. Um, sometimes it's challenging, but try to assume the best in people. But, but I, I would say that for myself and people around me, that really is a very empowering way to approach people. So let me ask you, Dr. Celestio, how do we lose sight of this? And how do we come from this reaction where our first impulse is to be negative and dig our heels in and, and, and sort of figure out who's right and who's wrong to, to really kind of recall that, that we're all at some level human and, and sure. ultimately want what's the best for people around us? Such a great question. Thank you, Avit. Can I recognize Dr. Sanjay Desai, that he was ahead of his time, just amazing in, in the way that he modeled such gorgeous humanity and compassion and kindness. And really what he was describing, uh, which I may get to a little bit later, uh, is compassionate assumption, something that has been very popularized from uh, Dr. Brene Brown, who I always like to say is my best friend. She just doesn't know it yet. But Dr. Brene Brown is, is it, as, as some of y'all may know, is, is a wonderful author slash speaker slash um, podcast host as well. And has talked about several of these attributes like compassion assumption or, or several ways to kind of be more humane. How did we get here though? Really, I want to make sure that we also don't get dehumanizing and uncivil when we talk about this. We tend to really like to point fingers, right? And so I think our natural tendency would be to, to blame and point out okay, it's, it's because of this or because of these people or this. And the truth of the matter is it's because of just human nature, from, from my perspective, at least. I want to offer up to you all some thoughts that really come from my own feelings, but also just history in general. One is is the kind of thought process of the hard versus the soft science. I know that y'all have all heard about this, right? So the hard science, which is anything evidence-based and, and anything that actually can be proven, especially with large randomized controlled trials, we love large randomized control trials, don't we? Especially in cardiology. I think that this is a, this is a wonderful statement that we all love to drop whenever we're talking about some kind of data. And then we have the soft science, which is maybe things like philosophy and the social sciences and psychology. And somewhere along the lines, there was a feeling that the hard science was more valid and more rigid and the soft science was less so. And I would argue completely against that. I always like to talk about, you know, whenever I, I talk about the things that I study in medical education, like, gender and sex differences in medical education, et cetera, versus, you know, things like in cardiology, when we're talking about death and MI, I always like to say, you know, I know that you'll call maybe what I do more soft, but I promise you this, it's the hardest things to measure, right? It is much easier to measure troponin and death than it is to measure things like humility, compassion, kindness, and how to communicate with each other effectively. So one thing is, is this kind of, I would say, mistaken or, or misplaced thought process that there's this hard science and the soft science and the soft science is less than. But also, I would also offer up just like me. I am the exact same. I love certitude, y'all. I love a nice clean two plus two equals four, four plus four equals eight. We all do. But I think sometimes when we lean into the places where there's certainty, when we lean into places where there's certainty, then we lose an aspect of humanity, which is things like communication and compassion, kindness, and humility, the absolute essence of what makes great physicians in my mind. Great physicians should always be competent, should always be skillful, should always be knowledgeable. But really, when you think about great physicians, they also meet patients where they are. They also show that humanity and that compassion and kindness. We also love mastery, right? And so we think, who are the great masters of cardiology? 
Well, what about the the masters of great communication, um, of great compassion and kindness? Do we ever talk about that? We don't really. And I would, again, argue that, hey, this is exactly what we need in our world right now, in our society, and especially in medicine. I would also argue that, and maybe argue should not even be the term that I should use. I want to offer up to y'all some other things that we should think about. What about our system? When our system rewards productivity over quality, so say, for instance, we have systems that value making money over how much compassion we show our patients and about meeting our patients where they are. What if we instead valued humanity and valued humans and actually looked at the level of human beings? So when people don't have access to healthcare, when they don't have good healthcare literacy, are we actually meeting patients there? And what if we measure that instead of how much money we make or how many new patients we see? How incredible would that be? And how where would we be in medicine if we had that? I also would argue that sometimes it feels really good. And I totally understand this. It sometimes it feels really good to lean into reputation and titles and recognition over the simple acts of humanity, like taking the time to call someone's loved one to make sure they understand that conversation that you had with a patient that was really hard. You know, those recognitions go unseen and unvalued every single day. And so sometimes when we lean into things like titles and, you know, all of these big, wonderful things that we get to kind of put behind our names and we forget the beauty of the everyday recognitions of actually meeting our patients where they are. I would argue that maybe that is where we're losing ourselves and losing that humanity in medicine. And I would just ask all of y'all to think about what if, what if we put the same amount of emphasis on all of these things as we do the science and where would medicine be? And I would say maybe we'd be in a totally different place. And my hope is maybe we will in the future as we try to put more emphasis on humanity. Just my two cents. That's that's tremendous, Dr. Celestio. And I, I couldn't agree more that this is a competency and it's a core competency, just like being able to read an EKG or an echo, but being able to connect with our patients, connect with each other, and really, in a lot of ways, restore that faith in the patient-physician relationship that I think has been challenged over the last few years in so many ways. That's a, a key goal that we lose sight of sometimes when we're in training. But I think when we think back on the things that provide fulfillment for our patient interactions and fulfillment in terms of why we do this this work that we do, I think those are the things that we look back on and say, wow, I made a difference today, or wow, mm-hmm. I really, this, this patient's uh, trajectory was changed in a way that was meaningful for them. Um, and I think that's so, so powerful. I think the next step then is also, you know, this is a group of educators. How do we cultivate that empathy and how do we cultivate that desire to become an empathetic humanistic physician within our learners? And how do we create educational systems that, you know, instead of pushing us away from these, these impulses push us towards the positivity? How do we assess our learners for having this skill set? And how do we, if we find it uh, lacking, how do we remediate and how do we, how do we help people who are struggling with it move forward and and improve on that skill set? Absolutely. Oh, I love this question. Thanks, Tommy. First of all, you know, some people have even posed the question of, can you even teach virtue and compassion and kindness? And uh, I I would like to offer to y'all that I am the best example of this. As an intern, I can honestly tell y'all I probably was a great big jerk intern, maybe, maybe the biggest, because 
I had just enough information to be dangerous. And then also enough, uh, way too much confidence. My confidence to confidence ratio was way, 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 way out of way. And so I will say that, can I offer up myself as an example that this can be taught and learned and, and through humility, sheer humility and the desire to want to be better, get better, be better and take better care of patients is, is where I found myself in this situation today. So I, I would say, yes, we can teach this. And, and things just like you just mentioned, Dr. Desai's teaching to y'all of compassion assumption. If, if I may, I'd like just to offer up a little bit about compassion assumption because it's so critical. So compassion assumption is that thought process that everyone has a valid reason for acting the way that they are acting. Or another way to put it is to say that people are doing their absolute best. They're doing their absolute best. And I love this example. I came up with this example as I was as teaching the medical students. And, and I know this has never happened to any of y'all because y'all are 20 times better than I am. Definitely better than the, the number one jerk as an intern. Um, but for sure, if you've been in traffic, friends, okay, do you know what I'm talking about when you're in traffic, you're in a lane and you've been waiting for so long and it's not moving at all. And then all of a sudden, some person in their car flies past y'all and then goes to the very front of the line and tries to cut in. Do y'all know what I'm talking about in traffic? I, and I don't know about y'all, but for me personally, I have a few choice words. Ones that I will not share with y'all because we are in a very high and esteemed company here. And I would never want to use those words around y'all. But I would have a few choice words, maybe even some actions, and they would not be cute. They would not be pretty. Let's just say that. Now, compassionate assumption. Let's just say that I was this person that knew compassionate assumption back in the day. Compassionate assumption, have you ever, ever, especially someone in healthcare, wondered, wow, that person must have just gotten a really important phone call that maybe their loved one is dying and I've got to get to the hospital as fast as possible so I can be at their bedside. Has that ever crossed your mind? Because that's compassion assumption. Or have you ever thought, wow, that person may have heard or, or gotten the phone call that their significant other, their partner is delivering their child or having their child and they've got to get there as fast as possible so they can be there for that you know, just monumental moment. I can honestly tell y'all that that never crossed my mind for years and years and years. And only until I learned this concept of compassion assumption did I realize, wow, I can do better. I can be better. And the gorgeousness about compassion assumption is that it does nothing for the other person. So that person that just raced by you and cut in at the beginning of that line in traffic, you practicing compassion assumption actually doesn't do anything for them. It's not like you're going to go have a conversation with them. At least I hope you're not going to chase them down and have a conversation with them. I highly recommend against that. Um, but I will say that what gift it gives to yourself, the peace and the kindness and the empathy that it gives yourself is beyond measure. You know, when you practice hatred and anger, it's that saying of like drinking the poison that you want someone else to drink. And it's really harmful to yourself, actually. So compassionate assumption I would offer up to y'all is really a, a gift unto yourself. Well, that is just one of the many tools I feel like that we need in our toolbox in medicine that we just simply don't have. We're not teaching it. We need to be better about in putting this in the infrastructure of medical education. So things that are taught out there besides compassion assumption, things like how to stay in guilt versus shame and how to act out of guilt versus shame so that you don't resort to your really, really bad defense mechanisms like anger, withdrawal, and perfectionism. Things like being humble about what you don't know. So for example, there's this wonderful organizational psychologist, Adam Grant, who has a book called Think Again. It is absolutely amazing. And it talks about how, you know, we always talk about mastery in medicine and how who's the expert in all of these things. But in truth, 
all, we all have our deficits and we all have our blind spots. And if we don't realize what those blind spots are, if we don't actually remain humble in those areas, then we will actually function in a place where we are going to do harm to others and also not realize where we can grow. We can't even get to the growth mindset part without being humble about what we don't know. I like to offer this up to y'all and to others, to other learners. What I like to say is knowledge is like an island in the middle of an ocean. And as much knowledge as we gain and as much as that island expands greater and greater, it never diminishes the vastness and hugeness of that ocean. So for example, if you did learn the cure for heart disease, which by the way, if you do high five to any of y'all and please let me just, you know, join that bandwagon. But I, I don't know of anyone that's actually there yet. But if you do find the cure for coronary disease or for ACHD, whatever it may be, heart failure, maybe think about this. Think about every time we come up with a new piece of knowledge or a new drug or a new procedure, how many more pieces of ignorance does that actually create? What side effects does it cause? What are the bad outcomes? What are the things that could actually occur subsequent to that? It actually expands the shoreline of the island of knowledge such that the ocean always is greater. It's always greater. So again, humility. There are so many things in our toolbox that I feel that we're ignoring. I'm not the expert in all of these things, but what I, I am the expert is in ignorance. And so I will tell you all now that we are, we are not doing a good enough job. We need to be better at teaching some of these psychology philosophy concepts to actually expand our brains so that we're not leaning so hard on the, the, you know, the hard science that is expanding and growing as well, but that we're also growing this other portion of ourselves that really covers humanity, love, kindness, all the wonderful things in medicine that really make medicine what it is. So I'm going to offer up to you a few ideas. I'm an ideas person. Ask me this again in 10 years, and I'm probably going to have a completely different answer. So also realize that I'm humble enough to know that this is probably going to evolve over time. But I'd like to just offer up a few ideas that I came up with. One is, is that what if, okay, y'all know, y'all are cardio nerds. I'm a cardio nerd myself, right? We have these amazing guidelines. I love them. I use them on the daily, okay? I love guidelines. What if, in addition to acute coronary syndrome guidelines, what if we had humanity guidelines? What if we actually said, these are the guidelines as a physician or as a medical care provider that we want to ascribe to. We want to represent the best of humanity in this world. So in medicine, when we practice it, we are going to adhere to these humanity guidelines. What if? And then what if also with entry into medicine? So all of y'all are going to be in medical education or already are, and I love it. What if in addition to MCAT scores, in addition to GPA, in addition to all these wonderful metrics that we look at, wonderful tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but what if, what if we also measured levels of humanity and humility? So what if we also measured things like, okay, how much growth mindset does this person have? Or how much humility does this person have? How much desire does this person have to actually grow, not only in their knowledge, but also in their ability to interact with others and communicate with others and meeting them where they are? What if we had better screening at all levels, medical school, residency, fellowship, et cetera? I also would offer up that we need to do better about teaching these things, as I mentioned, teaching these things in these toolboxes and assessing them as well. Assessing is hard. It takes money. It takes time. And it, it really takes a dedication and, and a devotion to it. And I, and I would I would offer up that we we need to be better. We need to do better. I would also offer up that just like with knowledge and competence and procedures, we need to not only assess, but we need to remediate better. So for those individuals that are not demonstrating that humanity, what do we do with them? 
And we don't want to blame them and shame them, as, as I've already talked about before. We actually want to meet them where they are and say, hey, you know, how can we help you get to a place where you can interact better, better with others? How can we help you get to a place where you don't blame yourself, beat yourself up so that you go to that place of emotional reactivity and poor coping mechanisms? And then I have to say this, and, and I'm going to, I'm sure, get some flack for it at some point, but we've got to teach and assess our leaders. It does us no good if the leaders of medicine are out there on Twitter and social media and saying things that are dehumanizing and uncivil. We ourselves have to be the example in medicine for our society, for our people, for our children, for everyone that comes there after us. And then finally, and this is a tough one, because especially as a as an associate dean in the medical school, this is an exceptionally hard one, because I don't believe that I am any better than anyone else in so many different things, but we do have to have accountability. So what I mean by that is, is when we do have violations of humanity in medicine, right now we have, you know, as, as I believe it was Atul Gawande that talked about the quiet talks, we don't really have good processes for addressing violations of humanity in medicine, right? We have things like, oh, maybe we'll take their license away, et cetera. But do we really have good processes where we can identify violations of humanity and where we can actually have people held accountable to them and then actually help them be better? So these are just some ideas. I'm sure, as I mentioned, that they'll evolve over time. But man, as I look out into this audience of amazing medical educators and future medical educators, I want y'all to think about these things because y'all are the ones that are going to change the world. And how great would it be if y'all came up with ideas that evolve around this so that we can be the representatives in our society of how to deliver the most humanizing and wondrous interaction with our fellow human beings, especially for those that are sick and suffering, right? If, if anyone out there should receive humanizing and compassionate and kind behavior, it should be those who are sick and suffering. And I would argue that we in medicine are the ones that should hold ourselves to the highest level of humanity. So those are just some ideas. I like how you just humbly say, these are just some ideas. And uh, But I think what you really have done is outline a, a whole toolbox of ways to reinvigorate this humanity into our day-to-day practice. And when you pitched this talk to us, you're saying you, you titled it The Humanity Deficit in Medicine. Really, and when I as I listen to it as we go through it, it's it's the humanity deficit, but it's also the the hope for the future and the power of compassion and assumption, the power of having meeting people where they are and finding that uh, that key common humanity that makes us so exciting and fun to be a, a physician in so many ways. Absolutely, I, I think that. It's uh, it, it's what makes it exciting. It's what makes this this job the the special job that it is. That I think is why we all came here in so many ways. I, I want to go back to our scenario now with the knowledge that you've imparted on us about how we can be more humanistic and how we can move from that initial negative impulse of the humanity deficit to compassion assumption. And we've got another skit I think that well demonstrates that that change. So I'm going to kick it to, to Dan, who's going to introduce our, our next skit in uh, another another Friday afternoon at the Cardio Nerds Medical Center. Uh, thank you so much for that, Tommy. Um, and uh, Dr. Lucio, listening to you has just been such a treat and really uh, confirming things that we have felt going through the medical training and also kind of opening our minds to like other ways to perceive 
the environment around us so that we can get through medical training and medical practice in a healthier, happier way. That compassionate assumption really reminds me of like that cognitive behavioral therapy where Mm -hmm. you just think about what um, somebody else is going through in a positive way. And it totally, Mm -hmm. as you said, it doesn't really impact that other person, but it just impacts you. It brings you a sense of just much more, you know, enhanced well-being. And I remember and I know this is a little bit of a tangent and I'll just keep this super brief, but I remember learning about cognitive behavioral therapy as a medical student and reminding myself that if I trick myself to have automatic thoughts that are really exciting, um, then maybe I'll feel better. And I think it was second year med school that I started walking around and whenever somebody said, how's my day, I would just like be overtly positive and say, it's amazing. And that's what I do today. You know, as I walk around the cat lab, I just say, my day is amazing. And people are like a little bit put up and now they have grown to accept that. And in fact, They say I have a monopoly on that word, but I have found that if you say it, you start to believe it and you just uh, could get through life in such a um, positive way. And I just love that idea of compassion assumptions. I never thought about it in that form. So it's just like a great twist for that. Thanks, Dan. It's so great talking to you about these things. Oh my gosh, I can go on and on, but let me not derail. Um, So we are back for another Friday afternoon at the Cardinals Medical Center. This time, we have Dr. Kate Wilcox, who's going to play our medicine resident, and Dr. Rowan Amir is going to play our consulting cardiologist. Our patient scenario is the same. Miss H is admitted with end-stage heart failure, and after a patient-centered conversation with our admitting team, she has stated that she would like her ICD turned off. Let's see how this scenario plays out differently when our actors treat one another with humanity and respect. Beep, 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 beep. Oh, look, it's Elite Consult. Hey, this is Rowan with Cardiology Returning a Peach. Oh, thanks for calling me back. I'm sorry for the late consult. But that's okay. We've all been there. What's up? Well, I was hoping for your help with a patient we currently have on service, Miss H in bed 10. She's a 75-year-old patient with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and end-stage heart failure. She's clinically stable, but end-stage and not an advanced therapies candidate. I just finished chatting with her and she would like to have her ICD turned off. Oh, wow. That's a really tough situation. I'm really glad you were able to establish that rapport with the patient, though. I should be able to help out with that. Do you know what model of device she has so I can bring the right programmer? Um, I didn't actually have a chance to look it up before calling you. But that's okay. I'm sure you were just trying to reach out in time. And we're more than happy to help figure this out for the patients sooner rather than later. I'll tell you what, I'll take a quick look at the x-ray, figure out what kind of device she has, and I'll swing by and talk with the patient in a little bit. And if you're around, I can also show you how to look at the x-ray to figure out the device model too. Wow, that would be great. Thanks. Excellent. Fantastic acting. And I think a a far more accurate representation of what Ruan is like on consults, uh, for sure. (laughs) As Patrick says. Ron is actually probably even still nicer. I I, I couldn't write a, a, a scenario that shows how nice Ron actually probably is on consults. But well, I'll kick it to you, Dr. Celestio. How in our day-to-day consult interactions can we model compassion assumption? How can we model this when we're, even when we're stressed, even when it's 455 and the consult comes in? And Absolutely. how do we do that in a way that, uh, you know, best serves our patients? Because uh, what I like about the scenario is that this is a patient who, really, you know, could go into VT that night and could uh, have have another shock that night. So how do we make sure that we're doing right by our patients and that ways that we interact with each other is allowing us to do right by our patients? 
Absolutely. So good. And and yes, that acting was stupendous, but but also um I, I love seeing maybe the true nature or or even just a, a just a scratch of the surface of the kindness of Rowan, um, the, what she's really like, I'm sure. How can we really do better going forward? I think first and foremost, just knowing about this term and this kind of thought process and philosophy of compassion assumption, just knowing it and making an effort to practice it every single day. I will not lie to y'all and tell y'all it is easy. It is not easy, especially, you know, y'all wrote the perfect scenario, which was you're exhausted. You have been on for days and you really are trying to make it to your kid. And and that's completely understandable. But just understanding that this uh, thought process exists and a change of thought process compared to what you naturally have a tendency to do, which is maybe to go into the shame and blame and making that effort to practice it. Also, I think that we need to be very, very good and we need to be also better about teaching this in medical education as well. We need to be very good about understanding and knowing when our tank is empty. So all of us are going to get there. Really, medicine and practicing medicine and being with the sick and suffering is a hard job. It was, as I like to tell my learners, it was never meant to be easy. It was never promised to be easy. In fact, one of the most gorgeous things about medicine is that it's not easy. You get to be with people at the most pivotal moments of their lives, when they're having children, when they're losing their loved one, or when they're losing their own life. And so know that that is going to deplete you in ways that we can't even describe. And when your tank is empty, you are at high risk for not being the best version of yourself. Being aware of that and conscious of that is very, very critical. Knowing what your unhealthy defense mechanisms, I think, is also very, very critical. So recognizing what you do when your back is against the wall. So anytime that you're in a bad, bad argument with one of your loved ones where, you know, the kind where your gloves come off, you know what I'm talking about, right? And what you tend to do in those scenarios, like I mentioned, my go-to are withdrawing, get angry, and get more perfectionistic than I am. So knowing what your defense mechanisms are, but not only knowing them, but knowing what triggers them. What is it about the interactions that trigger those defense mechanisms? Is it feeling worthless? Is it feeling like you're not good enough? Is it feeling like, oh, I'm failing? And realizing that those narratives are not true, y'all. They're not true. Y'all are all amazing and wonderful individuals, and we're all imperfectly perfect. So realizing that about ourselves is one of the greatest struggles of every human being and also getting to that place of acceptance of who we are and that we are going to mess up also helps us get to that place where we recognize those triggers, we recognize those unhealthy defense mechanisms, and maybe we can act differently. It really is all about going from those emotional reactivities to a higher level of thinking. So take that pause, think about it. I would argue that this is actually the hardest work you'll ever do more than any MCAT, more than any board exam, is recognizing what your triggers are and your defense mechanisms and working to do better. So those are just some things to offer up. Maybe those will help. No, thank you so much. I think that this is an incredibly uh, poignant discussion, especially as we embark on this uh, this new year for the Cardinals Academy. And I think we find ourselves in constant point of transition where we go from new roles, uh, whether a new role within an educational role, new role from being a resident to a fellow, over a, a fellow to an advanced fellow, a, a advanced fellow to attending, whatever it may be. But I think that these are the messages that when we work internally about how we go through our day-to-day practice, um, and how we try to embody that humility, identify the triggers within ourselves, identify the parts of ourselves that we're trying to work on and trying to improve, and name it, as you said, naming things like compassion and assumption, naming things like 
you know, this magnificent naming, naming the, um, the work that we're trying to do gives it uh, attention and allows us to focus on it. So I, that's just, I just want to thank you for, you know, everything you've said over the course of the last hour here. And I think that, you know, there's so much to, to chew on as we, as we go forward with this year. It's and you want to thank you. Oh, the honor is a hundred percent all ours. This has just been fantastic. I, I do want to end on a note that we end a lot of our episodes with. And Dr. Lucio, I'd ask you, what, what makes your heart flutter about bringing humanity back to the practice of medicine? Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. I, I'm going to try to keep this brief. It's hard. As you can tell, I, I tend to be loquacious <laughs> sometimes. Number one, I just want to say that looking at all of y'all's faces makes my heart flutter. And knowing that this is the future of medicine and medical education makes my heart flutter. Um, so, so thank you for this opportunity. I just, I adore y'all. I adore y'all and I adore this whole group and, and I'm excited about everything that y'all will do. But I, I will say that particularly when it comes to humanity, the, the humanity deficiency in medicine is that if we can make humanity just as important as the science, and restore medicine to what I love it to be, that perfect marriage, right? It's not just the science, it's not just the medicines, and it's not just the procedures, but it's also the ability to connect with our fellow human beings. If we can restore it to that, what makes my heart flutter is the thought that both the patient and the provider will come away better for it. And maybe even that our society and our world, especially for our children and for the future of medicine, will be better for it too. That's what makes my heart flutter. You couldn't ask for a better note to end on. Thank you so much, Dr. Celestia, for for offering your time and your wisdom and um, and I think sharing your journey with all of us here today. I think we're all works in progress and I think this is a an amazing reflection of all this. And um, just thank you so much on behalf of all the Cardinals family. Thank y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I adore y'all.